Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Jack Schaefer. Jack is a psychologist, professor, intelligence consultant, and former FBI special agent. He spent 15 years conducting counterintelligence and counterterrorism investigations and seven years as a behavioral analyst for the FBI's National Security Behavioral Analysis Program. Jack is currently a professor with School of Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice at Western Illinois University. He's also a contributor for Psychology Today and has authored and co-authored several books, including his most recent release, The Like Switch. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into the work that you do? Well, I guess, you know, it started when I was uh, young and my mom used to take me to the mall and I would just sit around and instead of looking at, into the store windows, I would look at people. I became extremely interested in looking at people's behaviors and trying to figure out what they did. And my interest kept growing through the years until I had an opportunity to to join the FBI and become a behavioral analyst. And I was able to formalize everything that I learned over the years. And it, uh, it paid off in, uh, in a great way when uh, it came to counterintelligence and developing spies and trying to get them to uh, turn and work for us instead of their country. What were some of the things that you picked up in those early years in your career? Well, some of the things I picked up is that People don't necessarily pay attention to what other pe what other people's nonverbals are. In other words, even in the day when there was no technology, people had a tendency not to look at the people they were talking to. They had a tendency to kind of get into their own, and they only paid attention to the things that were relevant to them. So anything that wasn't relevant or they didn't think was relevant to them, they just kind of ignored, which gets people in a lot of trouble sometimes because they're not paying attention to the nonverbals and the verbals. Can you give some examples of that? Well, if, if you, you have something called, we have something called the primacy effect. And what happens if we get an idea or notion in our head, that forms a filter through which we view uh, all other things that are said or that we see. So when we have that filter, somebody else says something, we automatically filter it through this primacy filter, and we only see what we want to see, not reality. So the primacy effect doesn't change reality. It just changes people's perception of reality, and that's where a lot of miscommunication comes from. And that's why first impressions are extremely important, because when you make that first impression with, with somebody, everything else that you do or say is going to be filtered through that perception that person formed of you when they first met you. So know, knowing that people have this primacy effect and it affects the way that they perceive you, what does somebody need to do to try to increase the chances that they're going to be able to build a connection with someone? Well, the, the, the things you have to do are verbal and nonverbal. We'll start with the nonverbal stuff, and that is to send friend signals. There's three basic friend signals. There's the eyebrow flash, which is, the, which is a quick up and down movement of the eyebrows. It lasts about one sixty-fourth of a second. And that's a long distance signal that says to the person we're approaching, I'm not a threat. And when that other person that's approaching us sees our eyebrow flash, they will reciprocate with an eyebrow flash. And they're telling us they're not a threat. So... We're telling one another at a long distance that, hey, you don't have to worry about us. We're not going to threaten you in any way. The second thing you want to do is you want to tilt your head to one side or the other. And that what the head tilt does, it exposes your carotid artery, which is very vulnerable. So what you're telling the person when you tilt your head from one side to the other is that I'm exposing a very vulnerable part of my body. And uh, I'm, I have no fear that you're going to harm me in any way. And a good demonstration of this is, is the people that own dogs. When the owners first come to the door and open the door, the dog typically sits there and it will tilt its head to one side or the other, or it'll flip over on its back, exposing its uh, stomach, which tells the owner, I don't fear you because I am uh, exposing the vulnerable parts of my body. The last thing 
that we can do is to send a, a smile. And smiles do several things. The first thing a smile does is it releases endorphins. And endorphins are those things that make us feel good about ourselves. So if we smile at somebody and they smile back, then they get a release of endorphins and that helps uh, them be predisposed to like us. So if you do those three things non-verbally when you approach somebody, you're sending a signal that I'm not a threat and you're predisposing the other person to like you before you even open your mouth. You said that those are the nonverbal components. So are there also verbal components or what are the other components that you were alluding to? Yeah, there's, there's verbal components and those are the first one. It's called an empathic statement. And all an empathic statement is, is you're re, you hear what somebody said, how they feel or their emotional status. You use parallel language and then you mirror it back to them. And what that does is it tells that other person that that you, in fact, are paying attention to them and you understand uh, their situation. And the simplest way to construct a empathic statement is you is to use so you. And that keeps the focus on the other person and not yourself. So if you see somebody, typically, if you want to get a better service at a store, you go up to the salesperson and you see that they're very tired. What you want to do is reflect that back to them and say, oh, so you must have had a long day. And they will typically say, yeah, I did have a long day. We had a lot of customers, a lot of things for me to do. And what you're actually doing is telling that person, I'm paying attention to your situation. And I care about how you feel. And that's a, a good way to, to verbally let somebody know that you care about them. The other way is, is flattery, and if you want to flatter somebody, you, if you give them a direct flattery, then they're going to usually get their defenses up because they're going to wonder, why, why is this person flattering me and what do they want? The best way to flatter somebody is to allow them to flatter themselves, and that is giving them a chance to pat themselves on the back. And the way I do this uh, typically at, uh, at school where I teach is if somebody does well on an exam, I said it takes, it takes a lot of studying and a lot of hours put in to master the skill for the test. And uh, somebody has to work a long time for it and have discipline. So what does the student do? I'm not directly flattering them, but they're going like, yes, I am that person. I did put in a lot of work. I did discipline myself to study and master the skills. So they're giving themselves a little silent pat on the back. So you create an environment or a situation where it makes it easy for them to do that. Yes. And what that does is it's not direct flattery, but it does make them feel good about themselves. And there's a law that's that if you want people to like you, and that is if you want someone to like you, you make them feel good about themselves. And if you make them feel good about themselves, they're going to want to be with you again. And a lot of times they'll seek you out again to get that same good feeling. And if, if you notice what we're doing is with the nonverbals and verbals is we're putting all the emphasis on the other person. We're making the other person feel good about themselves. And that's the golden rule of friendship. If you want other people to like you, you make them feel good about themselves. And it works 100% of the time without fail. But we don't often use that because we're, it's all about us. It's all about our ego. So that, that's what holds us back a lot of times. I definitely want to talk about ego and what holds us back. But you mentioned that the first was the statement. And then you mentioned the next thing was, was a mirroring. Yeah, mir mirroring is another thing that we can do nonverbally. So when we approach somebody, send the friend signals. And then what we can do is if we mirror their behavior. So if they're, they're standing there with their arms crossed, we stand there with our arms crossed because when people mirror one another, it signals to each other that they're in good uh, rapport. And if you want to test this, you get a group next time you're with a group of people and you'll notice that everybody might have their arms crossed. And so what you want to do is uncross your arms and take another position. And within 
10 to 20 seconds, everybody in that group will then mirror you. And that indicates that there's good rapport in the group. Do people also have a tendency to mirror the leader of the group? Yeah, leaders, typically people look to leaders. Uh, when a leader enters the room, everybody looks looks to the leader and we have a tendency to mirror the leader. Yes, that's correct. What type of effect does it have when a leader begins to mirror the people around them? Well, what the, what the leader is doing is saying that I have good rapport with you because I am mirroring you. So when we mirror one another, all it is is a sign that there's good rapport. So the, the leader has good rapport with the people that he leads if he's mirroring them and they're mirroring him. So this is, this is a good way to test for rapport, actually, because when we meet somebody, we're going to mirror them. And we're doing that intentionally to let them know that we're in good rapport, when in fact there may not be rapport established when we first meet somebody. So after we mirror that person and we give them the friend signals and make some empathic statements, allow them to flatter themselves, what we want to do then is change our position. And as soon as we change our position and they follow and our lead, then we know that rapport has been established. And that works for sales a lot because when we first meet somebody, typically cold call, we meet them for the first time, we mirror them, we develop rapport, and then we want to test for that rapport. So we change our position. If they mirror us, now we know there's rapport, and now you can start your sales pitch and knowing that there's good rapport and they'll be receptive. I feel like this would also work well on a first date. Uh, yes, sir. It works. Everything we talked about works works well on a first day. <laughs> well, one, one thing I want to mention is um, I think this mirroring probably happens on a nonverbal, but also on a verbal level and probably within the things that you talk about as well. Is that true? Yeah, it, it takes a little bit longer for the verbal level to occur. And typically the, the nonverbals verbals happen a lot quicker because we as people rely on nonverbals to give us indications of social relationships. That's where our strong suit is. Our verbals are weaker. So if you meet somebody for the first time on the internet, we're operating in an area of, of verbals, which is our weakest point. So what you want to do is, is you want to get at least a Skype them or meet them in a public place for the first time. So you can start using your verbals or your nonverbal uh, indicators to uh, judge whether they're a good match for you or not. What, what was the third thing that you mentioned? Because you said there were three parts. I, w I was hoping you could break the third part down. Empathic statements, uh, you talked about mirroring, and then you talked about... Flattery. Flattery. Yeah, the flattery, we talked about that a little bit, is, is you, you don't want to... If you directly flatter somebody, like a student comes into my office and said, oh... Dr. Schaefer, you're the best professor I've ever had, and I really learned a lot. And what am I thinking? They want something what, from you. <laughs> they want something from me. But if they walk into my office and allow me to flatter myself by saying something to the effect, uh, you know, uh, learning law enforcement is difficult, but, you know, in, in, in this type of class, it's, it's a good – I learn a lot. And they're not directly flattering me. So I say, yes, I am providing that good environment. I am providing you the, the necessary skills to become a good law enforcement officer. So I do, you know, flatter myself a bit, you know, that silent pat on the back. And then that predisposes me to the student to like them. And then at that point, they can ask me something. I'll, the probability increases. I'll, I'll probably at least listen to them, if not acquiesce to their request. We can do that with dating. I mean. The other thing about empathic statements, if you're shy, you, you, when you approach somebody, you do the, the three, the, the uh, eyebrow flash, the head tilt, the smile, and then you know you, you, you make your introduction, and that person's going to say something. You can say something to affect if you're at a, a club or social situation, say, it looks like you're really enjoying yourself today, and that's an empathic statement. And that person says, yeah, I've been working really hard all week and this is one of the first chances I, I was able to uh, get out because I had a large, large project I was doing. And so what you say is, so you worked real hard on a project and it's successful and you want to get out and enjoy yourself. And what they're doing silently is going like, yes, 
it was a hard project. Yes, I did work hard, and they're silently patting themselves on the back. And if the person uh, is shy and, and can't continue that conversation, you get those dead spots that are deadly. And so what you can do is just take what that person said and form an empathic statement. So in this situation we just discussed, the person could say, yeah, I worked really hard all week on this. I put in 18 hours. So, so you could say, so your hard work paid off. And they'll say, you know, they'll silently think, yes, it did. And they'll add something and then you make another empathic statement. So you can actually have an entire conversation using empathic statements and the person you're with will leave that encounter thinking that you're the nicest person that they've met because you listen to them and you put the focus on them. The other thing I noticed that you're doing is you're creating a lot of agreements. Is there a strategy behind that? Yeah, it's called common ground. There's uh, common ground is actually one of the quickest ways to establish rapport. So if we find common ground with somebody, then we're establishing that, uh, that reciprocity or the uh, uh, predisposition to, uh, like one another. And there's three ways basically to establish common ground. The first way is contemporaneous common ground, and that is we share something together. I'm a student, you're a student. So we share that at the same time. I work for this company, you work for the same company, we establish it at the same time. The other way is temporal common ground, and temp all temporal means is over time. So if we share something over time, then we also find common ground. And over time, I've been to, you know, I've lectured a lot of cities in the United States. And if I meet somebody and I'll ask them, where are you from? They'll say, well, I'm from Dallas. And I say, oh, I gave a lecture in Dallas last year. So what that does is over time, we have that connection. And the last way and prob probably the most powerful way is vicarious common ground. And that's where we establish common ground through another person. Car salesmen use this quite a bit because you get to the car lot and they'll say, hi, my name is so-and-so. What do you do for a living? You say, well, I'm a, I'm a baker. And the car salesman will typically say, oh, my father was a baker. And what they've done then is got that common ground through that vicar the vicarious common ground through a third person. And uh, those are the quick ways to establish common ground. Yeah, I feel like people do, I hear a lot relationships, like um, somebody is in the same industry or somebody's family, we're both immigrants or they're from the same part of the country or they went to the same college. I mean, are these things that you notice as well? Are there some other ones that are also very common? No, the, the typical way that people seek you know, relationships is through common ground. That's what people seek out. And if you have trouble... You know, there's a tip for, for dating. If you have trouble with a discussion with somebody, the uh, research shows that if you discuss music, that, that, that that's your fallback for your common ground. If you have nothing else that's in common with the other person, talk about music because we all share music in common. Even if we don't share the same genre of music, we can either compare or contrast music or we can enjoy talking about the, the music that we both enjoy. So that's kind of your fallback position with the uh, common ground in a dating situation. What What are some other places someone could go other than music? Well, you know, and, and I do this with, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people that are shy or introverts, they, they have trouble going out and meeting people, especially in college situations. So what I tell them to do is, number one, leave their door open and put things they like, say they like. Uh, NASCAR. So you want to put NASCAR paraphernalia where people walking by can see it. Those people who are interested in, in NASCAR will stop by and say, hey, I see you like NASCAR. So the shy people can get those people that share that same common ground to come to them instead of them going out to meet other people. And of course, the people that have no interest in NASCAR will walk by the room and ignore it. So you're, you're actually People are self-selecting when they come in and want to talk to you and meet you. The other thing you can do is use what, what I call a curiosity hook. You can wear a hat with a logo on it of your favorite topic. You can wear a T-shirt. You could wear something that people are curious about. 
And then what happens is people then will automatically come to you and say, oh, I notice you have that button on there. That's very interesting. I notice you have that hat with this logo on it. I share that same view. Oh, I see your T-shirt shows this sports logo team. I love baseball or I love that team. So you've, there's lots of ways that you can use common ground, especially if you're shy, to bring people to you rather than you forcing yourself to go out and meet people. You can have people naturally come to you and, and have, they have the same interests. Those are awesome tips. It made me think about this idea of self-selecting, made me think of clothing, and then you mentioned it. It also made me think of when people self-select activities. In a digital world, it also made me think about how the things that you put out into social media is going to attract certain types of people to you as well. Yep, that's exactly what, what we what we try to do. So we're constantly seeking common ground with other people. And if it's on social media, the only way to do it is through, you know, texting or Facebook or, uh, you know, the other platforms that are available. And it's the way you dress, the way you act, the way you look, what pictures you put up that, that, that are very meaningful as far as developing relationships. So you have, you have to be careful what you put up. Because you don't want to track the wrong person. You don't want to send the wrong message. You don't want to send that primacy. You don't want that primacy to develop, you know, based on what you've said or put on your social media without thinking about what, what ramifications it has, especially when it comes to employment. You don't want to put up a lot of alcohol pictures or marijuana pictures on your Facebook and then go and try to get a job as a police officer. That typically probably won't work. <laughs> So you you have to be careful, and, and it's also in the dating situation. You, you want to attract the right people. So you have to think. You have to think before you post. I find this really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I think it has a profound impact on the type of people that you're going to attract on whatever your normal social feeds are. Second, I think on when somebody's building a dating profile, for example, it probably has a very profound impact. If somebody sees that so, if someone's into meditation or they're into mindfulness and they see somebody else is into it, that they're probably more likely to match with them. Or if they see, use police officer, if, if someone's a police officer and their dad was a police officer, that might, that connection or brother is a police officer. So like putting our personalities out there is going to sort of segment people that that sort of came to my mind. And then the third thing that came to my mind is this idea of certain people in the social media world have these massive influences or a massive following and influence as a consequence. And it's interesting because essentially what they're doing is what you're describing, but like with some level of scale. Oh, that's exactly what they're doing. And that's, isn't that what we do when we go through life is we, we have a tendency to lean towards or, or come in close contact with things we like and we distance ourselves from things we don't like. And that's, that distancing or that leaning is something we can use to judge personal relationships also. So if you, you're dating somebody or you meet somebody for the first time and you go through the friend signals, the empathic statements, allow them to flatter themselves. And then if you notice they start to, you know, you, they start to lean towards you. That's an indication that there's rapport that's being established because we lean toward things we like and we distance ourselves from things we don't like. And the same thing is is happening with the social media. I noticed that when we're coaching people that if that not only will people lean in or reciprocate behavior, for example, they'll reciprocate touch, you touch somebody's shoulder, they'll reciprocate that touch or they'll lean into it if they like it. But they when they don't like it, they will either pull back, they'll shift their weight, they'll shift their breathing, uh, they will tense up, they'll create space. Are, are, are all these things that you guys have recognized as well? Are there additional things that people can use to recognize whether or not their attempt to connect with another person is working? Yeah, typically what we do is when I, when I do some of these classes, we'll take the class out to a, a, a bar at night or a, a club just to look at different interactions. Typically, you'll see two people at a bar, a guy and a girl, and the guy turns his head to the girl and says something. She'll turn her head, and you'll, you'll see the friendship signals, the eyebrow flash, the smile, the head tilts. If there's a friendship developing, 
And then the next thing you'll see is the shoulders were turned, the torso were turned, and then you're facing one another and you're leaning in towards one another. And that's an indication, a good report. But in one particular case, we saw that the guy turns his head towards the girl. She says something and then she turns away to her friend on the other side. And then he continues to try to get her interest. And then pretty soon she turns her whole back towards him. And then he's talking to her back and he still doesn't realize that she's not interested. What should he have done differently? Not talk to her, find somebody else that he had come that, that was interested in talking to him. That would be the best bet because you can't force people to like you no matter what you do. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. One thing I, I've sort of realized is that if that you should mirror their body language in the sense that if somebody is turning away, then you should start to turn away in the opposite direction around the same angle. And if you try to engage them again, it's not, again, some people, like you said, some people just don't want to talk to you, move on. But sometimes when uh, you engage them, if you're now turning away, they'll re-engage you and start facing you and then you can face them. Yeah, that, I guess that's a technique that, that, that can be employed. Uh, it, it may work. But if that person doesn't want to talk to you, then they're not going to talk to you. They're not going to re-engage unless they're curious for some reason, you know, or they're they're playing coy or hard to get. But you, you really have to pay attention to those nonverbals. And the bottom line is, my rule is, I don't want to be with somebody that doesn't want to be with me. I would rather seek those people out that want to be with me, and we can enjoy each other's company versus me trying to force somebody to like me. That's not very enjoyable. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I'm curious how different levels of anxiety come into play because I find that, and some, I think you're absolutely right. I also find that when we're out and we're coaching somebody or I, I'm out and I'm interacting with people, that different people have different levels of anxiety in social situations. And sometimes, although they want to connect, their tendency might be to pull back into themselves because they feel uncomfortable in the environment or they have they've had sort of some type of history or set of experiences that makes them sort of turn into themselves. Do you think that's true and and if so, how do you deal with somebody because you're dealing with your own anxiety, but you're also dealing with another person's anxiety. How does one do that? Here's what happens typically. When you're in when you're anxious, it's a mild form of the fight flight response. When you're in the fight-flight response, there's, there's a cascade of hormones that initiate the fight-flight response. And one of the hormones cuts the signal to your reasoning brain. In other words, you're not, it, you, nothing's being inputted into your brain to be reasoned with. So if you have mild anxiety, you're not going to be listening to everything that's being said to you. And also, when you're in that uh, fight-flight response, you're not going to issue, naturally issue, or display friend signals. So you're going to be displaying what I call the urban scowl. In other words, stay away from me. So a, an anxious person needs to consciously uh, be aware that they're sending faux signals and what they should do when they're anxious, say, I'm anxious, 
and I'm nervous when I meet this meet this person, what I want to do is make sure I eyebrow flash, make sure I head tilt, make sure I smile to send that signal to overcome the anxiety. And that's where the friend signals are important, know how to use them. And then once you get common ground with that person, then you can go back into a, a more natural interaction with them because you're going to be more at ease. If somebody's in that state and you're the one interacting with them, and hopefully they, they are aware, they've listened to this podcast or they've read your book and they picked up these signals. But if you're the person who's interacting with them, like how, how do you manage that? Do you give them more space? Do you use the strategies that you're describing? Are there other things that they, that they should do? How do you manage that other person's anxiety? Or is that just not something you should worry about? Oh, no, you should worry about it. The, the, I think the primary tool you should use is the empathic statement. If, if I meet somebody and they're nervous, I immediately say, so you look as though you might be a little nervous. And they'll go like, well, yeah, I've never met anybody or I'm shy about meeting people. So you keep with empathic. So you're, you don't like interacting with people. You have a hard time. You're a shy person. You have a hard time interacting with people. And so what you're doing is getting them to kind of address the problem using that empathic statement. And they're thinking, oh, this person understands me. They know what's going on inside me. And that, of course, makes me feel a little more comfortable. And then you're allowing them to continue to kind of vent or walk through their anxieties. So it's a patient process. And you have to – the biggest thing is you have to be aware of what other people are thinking, doing, or feeling for this relationship thing to work. That's hard for us to do, especially in the tech world we're in where everything's all about us and we're in our little tech bubbles. The things that you're describing to initiate – an interaction or to build a friendship, to build that initial rapport and connection. Are we using the same tools to build our deepest connections or deeper connections? Or are there other things that people are doing? Oh, what, what we do is, yeah, once you get, these are all your initial contact things to get the relationship going. To, but there's something called the, the friendship formula is once you have proximity and frequency and you're with that person a lot, then the last element of that is intensity. So you have to keep the intensity up in the relationship. And one way to do that is to uh, be careful how much you tell somebody when you first meet them. And I call it the Hansel and Gretel effect. Most people want to just vomit or data dump everything. They just throw everything out there. And that doesn't leave much for the next day or the next. So what you want to do is the first time you meet somebody is just throw out a nugget. And let them work on the nugget. And then a week or two later, throw out another nugget, just like Hansel and Gretel with the breadcrumbs. Is that because people want to feel accepted? No, that's that people like to keep things new and novel. If I'm into a relationship and six months later, somebody tells me they're, they uh, like to skydive, I go like, whoa, you like to skydive? Well, I didn't know that. That's interesting. And so now you have a whole new uh, topic to explore. And then six months uh, away from that topic, you can throw out a no. Oh, I took a bicycle trip from, you know, New York to California. Oh my gosh, you rode your bicycle. So what we're doing is constantly what, giving things new and novel things because once things get old, we have a tendency to get bored and complacent. So what you want to do is to keep things new and novel in in the relationships, and that's one way to do it. Don't. Don't data dump everything about your life the first time you see them. You want to do it, but you're going to have to restrain if you want to keep that relationship alive and vibrant over a longer period of time. That makes a lot of sense. I, I was thinking more in the context when you said data dump of people dumping out their anxieties when they first meet someone because essentially they want to be accepted. Oh, you know, it, it, you can you can do that again with empathic statements. You know, you're you're you look nervous. Well, yeah, I am nervous because I don't like meeting people. I don't like meeting friends. I, you know, I got this or that. And so you can work through that to get them to feel comfortable very quickly. So, I mean, it's it's just a matter of, I mean, you, you know, this is all about is is making people feel good about themselves, making people feel better after having met you than before meeting you. 
And I think that's our job that we often neglect is you, you want to make somebody's life just that little, little bit better for having met you. But that, that causes you to focus on the other person. And that's difficult again, like we talked about to do. So what are some other, some things that people can do to make sure that they're not, or they're more focused on the other person than they are on themselves? Well, the, the number one thing is empathic statements, because that puts all the focus on, on the other person. The other thing, allow them to flatter themselves and uh, just have them, you know, seek out new and novel things that they've done and, and pay attention to them, you know, and, and, and kind of validate, you know, their life and how they feel and what they're doing. I mean, those are the basic tools right there. And you don't need a lot of tools. Your your empathic statement is a powerful, powerful rapport building tool. And a lot of people say, well, they know what I'm mirroring back. No, they don't. People don't realize when you're mirroring back language or something about their physical or emotional feelings. Because like we talked about before, everyone thinks the world revolves around them. So that, that person is thinking to themselves, it's about time somebody paid attention to me and realized you know, what's going on in my life. I remember seeing an article and it was like two celebrities dating and they're like, how do you know so-and-so has moved on and found a new man? And the caption below was they are dressing the same way and they were wearing sort of very similar colored t-shirts, very similar colored pants. Like they're basically, I mean, they're men and women's attire, but they're basically dressed the same way. And it, and it made me think of sort of the things that you're talking about. Cause you're talking about first, I'm mirroring body language. And then next it's verbals, right? I had a friend of mine when I was a kid who we hung out so much. If I answered his phone, his mother couldn't tell it was me. She thought it was her son. And, uh, but our rate of speech, our cadence, our word choice, our tone, um, would begin to sort of fall into sync. But even it, mo this seems to extend even to the way we dress and other things. Um, yeah, over a long over a long period of time during that relationship, yeah, we tend to dress alike. I know my I've been married thirty five years, and I notice my wife and I tend to dress the same now. And we look at each other and go, "Hey, look, we're wearing the same shirt or same clothes," or because that happens subconsciously over time, we tend to mirror one another, and that's where you get that uh, you know those uh, little comedic things where. The dogs and their owners look alike. You've, I don't know if you've seen any of those comparisons, but over a long period of time, yes, we, we do have a tendency to mirror our dress. And you can actually do that in the beginning is to mirror dress. Like if I'm going to go interview somebody who's uh, uh, not a business person, I'm not going to wear a business suit. I'm going to wear the attire that's appropriate to what they wear in their environment. So if you want to meet somebody in a, in a certain environment, you want to wear the same clothes that they wear. So you can start that process to get that commonality with, with this wearing the same clothes. The reason why I brought that up is because I think it goes back and supports what you were saying about people don't are not conscious of this. They just look at somebody and they say, or they, they think about how they feel. Right. Right. Like when sometimes I, I, I notice I walk through restaurants or I walk through a bar, I walk through a social event and you'll see two people and somebody who's listening to this can try this. You'll see two people who are mirroring each other. You'll see two people at a bar, two people who are standing, one crosses the arm, the other crosses the arm. Observe it in your own interactions. You're talking to someone, you shift your weight, they shift their weight. You yawn, they yawn. I absolutely agree with you. I think people don't really think about this. They just are at least on a conscious level or at least normally. Is that, I mean, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and if you want to test this, you know, I used to do this a lot when I went into restaurants and there's a couple that are sitting facing each other at a table. The first thing they do is they take all that stuff in, in the middle, the condiments and the napkins and whatever else is in the middle, and they shove it to one side because they don't want any barriers between them. The second thing they do is they lean towards one another. The third thing is mutual eye gaze or looking into one another's eyes. Then they'll touch hands. And then they'll whisper. And those that's the sign of a good relationship, you know, initially. So if you see asymmetrical behavior, it's a sign that something may not be going on right. The only exception to this is if you have somebody that's been married 60 years 
and the, 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 the couple are very, very comfortable with one another. So he may be sitting in there reading the newspaper and she may be sitting there knitting or eating and there's that quiet comfort that you can pick up. So, so they're kind of beyond all this and they've developed a strong bond with one another. They don't need that constant reassurance that the other person's going to be there and like so. Mm. So is that what someone's giving? They're giving somebody earlier in a relationships by doing these things, moving the condiments, leaning in, they're giving the person assurance? Is that sort of what's happening? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're constantly reinforcing the idea that I like you. Until they get to the point where they they know that you like them. Well, then you, you form a bond then at that point, and then you become like a couple, say. And then in your longer-term relationship, you know, there's you're going to have to ma- maintain that novelty, and that is that Hansel and Gretel thing. Just, just slowly tell people about yourself over, over time, and that'll keep the your you know relationship new. And if you want to go to extremes, you can do something scary, like you can even go to a scary movie. And what that does is. That causes people to, to, to like one another when they have that shared scary experience. Or you could bungee jump or go down Pikes Peak without brakes in your car or something, jump out of an airplane. You know, so you can constantly keep that relationship and the novelty there in the relationship and the intensity. So you're saying emotional experiences. I guess that's what happens when people go through traumatic experiences and feel bonded as well. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. So it's these emotional experiences that that continue to sort of build the bonds. Is that what you're saying? Right. It's like my I, my wife and I look at each other and go, you know how much we've been through over 35 years? Oh my gosh, we did it. And there's you feel this tie or this closeness because we've been through a traumatic experience. Police officers experience the same thing. When I was a police officer, you always feel closer to the people that you go into these these dangerous situations with you see it in in war movies and in, in actual war accounts where people form the the, the band of brothers because you, sh- you have that shared traumatic experience and you can mimic that like i said with with scary movies minimally uh, bungee jumping you know doing skydiving and you know kayaking running the Whitewater Rapids in Colorado or wherever or something. So you can mimic that same bonding. But you want to do it over a long period of time to make sure the relationship remains novel and new and exciting. The other thing I feel like that would, well, at least like the war zone type stuff or when you have a police officer, two police officers go into a potentially life-threatening situation and come out the other end then it probably also builds trust. Oh, yeah, of course it does. Yeah, absolutely. That's what that bond is. is I trust you and you trust me and I'll go into a dangerous situation knowing that you're not going to run away, that you'll always be there, that you'll always support me, got my back. When you talked a little bit about sort of wanting to be liked, and I feel like acceptance is a lot of people also want to feel one of the core things that most people want to feel is some level of acceptance by the people who are closest to them. Do you agree, or can you talk about that? No, we all we all we're, we're social beings. We're made to be social beings. We're not individuals. We we don't function well when we're alone. We seek out social relationships, and we, we constantly want to be wanted. We want to be liked. We want to be valued by other people because we are social beings, and we we can't get around that. We're just designed to be social beings, and that's what we do. We try to find people that we can become close to and that accept us. But you know what? People have to realize this, and I realized it a long time ago, that not you can't get everyone to like you. And if, if you just, for example's sake, 50% of the people you meet, you don't like them just because of the way they look, and they don't like you because of the way you look. And then of the 50%, as soon as you open your mouth, 50% of those people aren't going to like you. Because they don't share the same views. So it just continues to get smaller and smaller until you get down to those three, four, six, eight people that you can really connect with. And those are the people you should focus on. Focus on those relationships 
and not so much the relationships that that aren't, aren't as meaningful or, or don't have much potential for, for developing into deeper relationships. But just got to realize not everybody's going to like you. In fact, very few people are going to like you. But you got to find those people and focus on them and develop those relationships. That's where you want all your energy to go, not into relationships that aren't going to develop. Why, why do that? That's senseless. Well, I think it's a great point because there, especially when people are younger, I think there's this craving to be liked and liked by a lot of people. And you see celebrities who are liked by millions of people and yet they're unhappy because they don't, there's just something missing. Um, or maybe they don't have, in some cases, the deeper connections with a small group of people or they don't have a small group of people where they have those really strong, deep connections. Um, I think that you're, you're right that it's more important to have a few very strong, deep connections than it is to have tons of people who like you because in my, in my life, I find the most meaning in those relationships. And then there's also the practical component you described, which is not everyone's just going to like you. It's just part of life. Except you just got to accept it. But when we're insecure, as, as we're younger, we're insecure. We don't know who we are, what we are, where we fit in the world, how we fit in the social uh, situations. And so we're constantly wanting or seeking that acceptance. And then you get, as you mature and get older, you say like, you know what? I'm secure in who I am. I know who I am, where I fit on the space-time continuum. I know, you know what my job is, what my purpose in life is. And then the other things kind of fall away. And that's when you tend to concentrate on just those relationships. It's, it's economy of resources. I've got only so many emotional resources. I'm not going to waste them on people that don't like me or, or there's no potential for a relationship. I'm going to put all those limited resources into the relationships that are going to be meaningful. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think the celebrities where, you know, everybody adores them. Millions of people adore them, but how many of them have really good, close relationships? Yeah, that's what, that was essentially what I was getting at. And I, I think that's a, a great point. You talked about the friendship formula. Can you describe um, the laws of attraction? Well, the, the laws of attraction are uh, basically kind of the f things we talked about. If, if we find things in common with one another, we get attracted. If we share a scary experience, there's an attraction there. If we share the same uh, curiosities, there's an attraction. If we're cooperating, there's attraction. If we send friend signals, there's going to predisposition for attraction. So the, the like switch kind of outlines about, I think, 15 or 20 ways that uh, we're attracted to one another. Earlier, you were talking about um, this idea of novelty and continuing to bring out, or share new things about yourself over time and, and not data dump. There's going to be a point where somebody, and maybe you've sort of answered this already, but there's going to be a point where each person's going to feel like they don't really have very much more to share. <laughs> so how, like, I, I have a feeling your, your wife feels like she probably knows you fairly well and you probably feel like you know your wife fairly well. Would you, is that something you would agree with? Well, then you do, you, you, you go on a cruise, you go to a foreign country, you go on a vacation, you do something exciting. You jump out of an airplane together, go down Pikes Peak without brakes. I mean, there's ways to keep the relationship alive. If, you want to keep the relationship alive. And if you allow it to go into the doldrums, it's something you allowed. It just doesn't happen. You allowed it to happen without, because you don't have, you know, people don't have a good understanding of personal relationships. So you're saying nurture these shared experiences. Oh yeah. I mean, if, if I, you can never run out of things to say, if you do things together, and if you have shared experiences, it's only when you, you cease to – that's why you have to go on date nights. Even if you've been married for 30 years, you got to go on a date night. you got to go on vacations. you got to do things and have that shared experience that you can communicate and share with one another. And then reminisce. Reminisces are very important. Oh, remember when we did this? Remember when we did that? So it gives you an opportunity to kind of relive those same feelings again. I call that bridge back. You're, it's an emotional bridge back. 
and that that brings those same emotional feelings you experienced, say, 10 years ago on a vacation, brings them to the present. So you're re-experiencing that excitement again. So you want it, it gives you an emotional bridge back. But if you have nothing to bridge back to, then you, you can't. You know, there's nothing there. It's kind of a void. What What are some other things people can do if they're drifting apart, or they feel like their relationship's drifting apart, or they want to repair a relationship? Number one, it goes back to the the uh, friendship formula. You you have proximity. You want to make sure proximal to that person. You're with that person. The second thing you want to do is make sure that you're frequently with that person. The third thing is duration. You want to make sure you spend a lot of time with that person, not just frequently, but a lot of time. And the last thing is intensity. You want to make sure you keep that intensity up in the relationship. And those are the things that we talked about, how to keep that intensity up. This has been absolutely awesome. I know we're sort of getting close towards the end of the time. Is there anything else, Dr. Schaefer, that you can recommend to the people who are listening to they want to who want to enhance their relationships and and build stronger connections more frequently what i think people should remember is um that their goal in in life as humans is to make that other person feel better about themselves and make their day a little bit easier and the ironic thing is if we like we get people to like us, they're going to want to do things for us. We don't ask them for things. They're just going to want to do things. Why? Because they like us. They're going to want to do us favors. They're going to want us want to help us out because they like us. So that's the irony of the whole thing is if you put focus on the other person, they're going to actually want to do things for you and help you out because they like you. This is a, a sort of a side t- tangent, and I, I want to bring it up before we close out because I just want your opinion. I recently had read, and, and sometimes when you read these quotes, they're misquoted, but it was a, a I think it was a Benjamin Franklin uh, advice, and he was saying that one of the first things you should do when you go into a new neighborhood is ask your neighbors for a favor. Yes, it's called the Ben Franklin effect. If you ask somebody for a favor, they're going to like you more. Because it goes back to the golden rule of friendship. When you do somebody a favor, how do you feel about yourself? I feel good when I do somebody a favor. And the golden rule of friendship says what? If you make people feel good about themselves, they're going to like you. So that's another technique you can do is ask people for favors. So Ben Franklin, if Ben Franklin was correct when he said that, but it goes back to that golden rule of friendship. You want to make people feel good about themselves. Jack, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, uh, we absolutely recommend that you read Dr. Schaefer's book, The Like Switch. And if you want to find out more about him, we're going to post some links on the Craft Charisma website and within the description of the podcast so you can find out about him more easily. Yeah, and you get the book on Audible and and Amazon and uh, iTunes and uh, Barnes and Noble. It's available. Okay. Well, we're go- we're going to share all those links so that people who want to follow you can follow you, and hopefully you'll sell some books because you have some absolutely awesome wisdom. And we're very thankful you took the time to talk to us. All right. You're welcome. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.